streets, we will take them like a thunderstorm. Raining down our power in the struggle, it has been reborn. We are shocking lightning for our people, do you hear our call? We have come for justice, time is up, but wait no more. Here we come, here, here we come, we're coming. Here we come, here, here we come, get that boat. No more taking lies, no more lies, we won't compromise. We have had enough, we are strong and we're organized. We are not alone, we're on the path that was carved by those who came before and they are with us. It's time to rise. Here we come, here, here we come, we're coming. Here we come, here, here we come, get that Every step is a heartbeat, moving our feet as we're bringing the heat. Every breath for those who died, that's us alive, carry on the fight. Every day is a new day to find a new way, together we liberate. Life from the forms of oppression, cause we are destined to live in love. Love is a radical power to heal the soul. Let love rain down from the Also streaming live online at www.wew.org. This is Indigo Radio with deepening understanding and making connections. We're on the air every Sunday um, at noon on 107.7 FM. Um, We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook. You can also listen to our shows and Go through our archives on SoundCloud. Look for uh, Google SoundCloud uh, Indigo Radio. We're also on Instagram, and we're, you can also listen to us on iTunes Podcast. Just look, you'll look us up, um, Indigo Radio, and we have a Facebook page. Um, the views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests, not the radio station. My name is Nina Kunimoto. Um, I am a doctoral student at UMass Boston, and I'm also a local educator. I, I teach at the Community College of Vermont and in the Spark Teacher Education Institute. So in preparation for, or you know, as Veterans Day is coming up on the 11th, um, I wanted to do a show uh, that talked about war and imperialism. Um, so um, I interviewed Patrick O'Neill. He is part of the Kings Bay Plowshares Seven. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit of a background on who they are. Um, Patrick goes through the history of the Plowshares. The Plowshares goes back to um, Philip and Daniel Berrigan, who um, were part of the, I pronounced this wrong, but I'm going to say Canton, um, C-A-N-T-O-N, uh, I think it's eight or nine, for eight or nine of them, who um, broke into the um, 
building where they held all the draft cards for the Vietnam War and they brought it out and burnt them. Um, and, you know, they continued to protest against the Vietnam War and subsequently um, the Bergen brothers, along with um, others who joined them, uh, protested against nuclear weapons. So that's the lineage and Patrick will explain more about that history. Um, but to the, give you a little background about the King's Day Plowshare Seven, they were seven um, Catholic plowshare activists who entered the King's Bay Naval Submarine Base in uh, St. Mary's, Georgia on April 4th, 2018. Um, the seven chose to act on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., who devoted his life to addressing what he called the triple evils of militarism, racism, and materialism. Um, and so they went in, they carried hammers, and Patrick explains um, that his hammer in particular was um, made out of melting weapons. Um, I'm not sure exactly which weapons, but he, or someone melted the weapons and made it into a hammer, and that's the hammer that he carried um, into the, the Kings Bay um, Naval Submarine Base. And they also uh, carried baby bottles of their own blood, um, and this is also what Daniel and Philip Berrigan did um, in many of their actions against uh, against nuclear weapons. Um, and the seven attempted to convert, um, they were trying to convert the weapons of mass destruction, um, and they hoped to call attention to the ways in which nuclear weapons kill every day. Um, so King, the King's Bay Naval Base was uh, opened in 1979 as the Navy's um, Atlantic Ocean Trident Port. So it is the largest nuclear submarine base in the world. There are six ballistic missile subs and two guided missile subs um, based at Kings Bay. And Patrick goes into the details of, of why it's far more dangerous for a nuclear weapon to be on a submarine um, when it's deployed and its undetectability. Um, and, and its precision in, in its deployment. So he goes into that a little bit. So the activists went into the base um, and they went to three sites um, and they used uh, a crime scene tape um, and they were, and Patrick explains, you know, they chipped away at these, um, I guess, statues of missiles that they have there. They hung um, banners that said, you know, the ultimate logic of racism is genocide, um, quoting Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The ultimate logic of Trident is omnicide, um, nuclear weapons are illegal, immoral. Um, so these are some of the things that, uh, these are the actions that they did um, to resist against the Trident missiles. Um, and Daniel Ellsberg also talks a lot about the Trident missiles in his um, fairly recent book, Doomsday Machine. And, you know, it this could potentially, if used, could create a nuclear winter and potential destruction of um, the human species and perhaps all species um, on this planet. So what the... Um, what the plowshares are doing is, is very significant. 
um, and often not talked about. Uh, so as I spoke with Patrick, I, um, I also told him that a lot of our listeners may be educators and how could we bring um, this into the classroom more and how can we link this more to imperialism um, and also anti-capitalism. Um, and also important to mention, um, you know, as I spoke to Patrick, he was waiting. He had already been sentenced to 14, um, I think 14 months in prison, federal prison. Um, and so he was just about to go to prison uh, just before I spoke to him. But there are others, right? And and it's important to understand that a lot of these activists are older. Um, and during a pandemic, you know, they, they shouldn't be going to prison. They shouldn't be going to prison at all. But considering the circumstance of the pandemic um, and prisons being sort of this place where it's so easily and quickly um, transmitted because of the enclosed, you know, aspect of prisons. Um, and so I think it's important, um, and I'll direct people to, um, you can uh, sign a petition to say that they, that these activists should not be sent to prison based on their age, like Elizabeth McAllister is 78 years old, um, Steve Kelly, from uh, the Bay Area in California, 69. Carmen Trota is 55. Um, Claire Grady is 59. Martha Hennessy, 62. Um, Mark Colville, 55. Patrick O'Neill um, is 61. Um, so, you know, considering their age, uh, they, they shouldn't be going to prison during a pandemic, but they shouldn't be going to prison anyways. Um, and, you know, Patrick also explains that the court, the judge, um, had absolutely no leniency. And, of course, I mean, you know, we're talking about the state, um, you know, military. So I think it's expected that there wouldn't even be leniency, but the harshness of how they were treated. Um, they had to wear ankle monitors. Um, and I believe uh, that time that they were under house arrest does not count towards, um, does not count towards time served. So uh, the, the legal system was quite harsh, uh, but expectedly so probably based on, based on their actions. So without, um, Without further ado, I also want to mention that uh, we started out with a song by Taina Asini um, called Here We Come. And um, she encouraged people to use this song um, in this time of protest and resistance. And I thought that was an appropriate song to start out with. So without further ado, here is Patrick O'Neill. As a father of eight children, I'm a is a is a social worker. She went to uh, got her MSW from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. You know, we live in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. uh, my children have attended several of the of the North Carolina state universities. Uh, one of my sons actually just uh, graduated from the UNC um, School of the Arts, which is actually a high school and a college combined. But I, you know, we value education and. 
I, you know, one of my daughters uh, went to, got an English education degree down here, then went on and got her MDiv, Masters of Divinity at Emory University's Campbell School of Theology. She's working in, working as a uh, campus minister at a Catholic high school in Atlanta, doing peace and social justice work. Uh, she also she also teaches theology as well as campus ministry. She uh, got a degree in Spanish. She's bilingual. She's, she's worked a lot with Latino, the Latino community. My other daughter uh, ran a birthing center in Chapel Hill, a freestanding birthing center with midwives for 15 years. Uh, she's now raising her, uh, my, my first grandson, Luke, who's two years old. Uh, Bernadette has my first granddaughter. Teresa, who's two years old. Uh, my daughter, Mora, has worked in the area of food justice and food security issues for years. She uh, was educated at the Quaker School, um, Guilford College in North Carolina, where she worked on the campus farm and does a lot of work with refugees and immigrants. She was out in Tucson working for years with the food bank and working with No More Deaths, bringing food into the desert, uh, working with uh, <coughs> Food Not Bombs. My other daughter, Veronica, was a Bonner Scholar at, at uh, Guilford College. Uh, my daughter, Annie, is now at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, majoring in English education and Spanish, um, and she's doing a lot of environmental work right now uh, down there. In fact, all uh, I have another son at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. All of my children are, are working on peace and social justice, and I, I'm just really happy as a father that my children all followed, uh, you know, the, the example that my wife Mary and I set for them, which was to make your make your time on this earth count. L live your life with with fullness of service to others and, and uh, with, with love in your heart. And I, uh, you know, I have to say, and I think that this is probably the way that all of you who are educators feel, is how do we... Uh, how do we make this world a better place? How do we make this world a place where uh, uh, it's going to be safe for our children and our and our grandchildren to grow and to prosper? Because I don't ever want my children to ask, you know, we had global warming, we had a nuclear arms race, we had endless war, we had racism, uh, we had Donald Trump, we had all of these issues that were going on. What did you do, Dad? What did you do, Mom? I want to have an answer for that question, and that's what's led me to the point where I am now, where I'm going to be going to federal prison for 14 months. But I will say this. My children were raised in a Catholic worker community, which is an intentional community. We did hospitality, a lot to immigrants, a lot to poor people, a lot to battered women. And I think that my children, uh, you know, because they lived in, in the same home with these people, that they learned a lot about what it meant to uh, to have a have a difficult life in this you know very wealthy country of ours, and I think that my children also had the opportunity to see their parents in handcuffs enough time getting dragged away by the police for nonviolent witnesses against war and against against uh, violence against immigrants and 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 other causes of justice against U.S. torture policies. That our children realize too that there's a consequence for fidelity to. To, to the works of mercy, you know, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to love your enemy, to uh, welcome the immigrant, you know, out of, right out of Matthew's Gospel, 25th chapter. Those are the works of mercy. And and I think, you know, I share the same goal. Uh, you know, I'm working to educate people about global warming, about militarism, about racism, about extreme materialism, you know, the three 
the triplets of the, tri the three triplets of evil that Martin Luther King recognized: racism, militarism, and extreme materialism. And in that context, uh, we are trying to make the world a place where global warming can be stopped, where human beings can learn how to resolve their conflicts nonviolently. And I tell everybody when I have opportunities to speak, we will never stop global warming until we abolish war. The amounts of the amounts the, the carbon footprint of the United States military is the worst of any violator of, of environmental security of any group. I mean we and to think about that you have to take into consideration that what the Pentagon gives us is useless products. Useless things, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you know, basically, here we are. You know, all of you educators sitting around tables trying to decide how do we how do we educate our children to to grow up in this world and to and to make the world a better place. At the same time, people are sitting around conference tables at the Pentagon planning the end of the world. These weapons, which I protested against with my six colleagues. These are weapons that can end the human experiment. These weapons are not props. They're real, and the United States is making real plans to use them. We have a, the United States has refused to sign any no-first-use policies when it comes to using nuclear weapons in warfare. We're the only country that's ever dropped atomic weapons on civilian populations. Uh, we, have, we have a terrible track record, and that track record continues. We have to abolish nuclear weapons. It's our only hope as a, as a human family. So I would just leave that there as an introduction. Great. And I think that's, a, that's such a perfect introduction because I actually want to come back to that, you know, the link between, you know, educators and, and the conference table at the Pentagon and also, you know, the, the actions in the world. And also, you know, I have so many questions to ask you about, you know, about war and abolishing war. So we will definitely come back to that. And that's what an amazing um, uh, work that you and, and your family have done. And, and I know, you know, just from some studies um, of uh, like things like liberation theology and things like that, that, it, you know, that, People in, in the Catholic faith have, you know, even in Latin America, mostly Latin America, but, you know, also here in the U.S. have done such um, great work. Um, and then so I was hoping for our listeners, because, again, like my introduction to, to this movement, to, you, to the movement that, that you're introducing, um, you know, in this interview, the anti-nuclear and anti-war movement, you know, I, I, mean, I knew about that in general, but then more specifically, Philip and Daniel Berrigan, like I learned about them through um, this book that I used to teach from, and, and, you know, I used to include them in my lessons um, in this book called 101 Changemakers. Um, and so for our listeners, I wonder if you can give us like a brief um, little history of who the two are um, and the school um, that that they created um you know, to, to sort of train nonviolent um, direct action against wars and what they did all the way um, through the 80s when they created the plowshares. Well, um, Phil Berrigan was an important mentor of mine. Um, I, uh, I, you know, when I, was, when I was young, in my very early 20s, I, I met him, and uh, I like to write. You know, I've always been a writer, and I would frequently just sit his sit at his knee and listen to him when he gave talks and when he spoke, 
and I would record him at rallies when he spoke, and I would come to his court cases and his trials. I visited him in prison. Uh, he, I, I, pretty, I compare Phil Berrigan, his impact, and Daniel's brother, and Phil's wife, Elizabeth McAllister, who is my co-defendant in this case right now, called the Kings Bay Plowshares. I consider them that the trio, those three people who, who changed the course of resistance to war uh, during the Vietnam War and their resistance to the war in, in, in incredibly important ways, in prophetic ways. But uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the way I describe Phil Berrigan is, you know, you, you go to the Pentagon and there's a moat full of sharks that goes around the Pentagon. Now I've been arrested at the Pentagon seven times, mostly for just kneeling down and praying the Lord's Prayer. That's an arrestable offense. But I'm sure Phil, who died in 2002, got arrested at the Pentagon, you know, maybe 30 times or maybe 50 times. I don't know how many times. He had more than 100 arrests and had spent more than 11 years in prison when he died in 2002. Wow. But, but you know, when, when you, know, you come up to that moat around the Pentagon full of sharks, without hesitation, Phil would jump into the moat. He'd reemerge from submersion, look up at you and say, come on in, the water's fine. And that's Phil. He fearlessly and prophetically uh, took a, took a, you know, putting his life on the line, uh, devoted it to the abolition of nuclear weapons and war. He was a World War II veteran himself. He experienced war. He experienced combat. And he, he had a, you know, he became a Catholic priest. He had a huge transformation. He became a pacifist. And, uh, you know, what Phil did two things. I mean, first he started out working in civil rights in the 60s. And uh, he was down in New Orleans as a Catholic priest. And, and he kind of cut his teeth on that movement. And then when the Vietnam War started, you know, Phil became a leader of the effort to end the Vietnam War. And I want to say that I think the pacifism and the organi organi organizing that Phil did in, in, uh, in the 20th century ranks literally up there with the work of Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi. I, I put him in the exact same category as those two people and Liz and Daniel as well. Um, the work that they did was transformative. When you look at old black and white footage of marches against the Vietnam War and of people getting arrested, you see many, many collars, clergy collars of people going to jail, nuns and habits going to jail. It changed the whole outlook of, of religious and consecrated women, religious people who, who uh, you know, became ministers and went to theology school and divinity school that they realized that their lives had to be actively engaged against evil, that it wasn't enough just to pray. It wasn't enough just to sort of uh, educate other people about evil, but they decided to put their bodies on the line, and Phil changed that. That, that was not a common thing uh, until the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement came. So what Phil started was, you know, what you mentioned, Catonsville, uh, actually, the Baltimore Four was the group that Phil was in first. That was the first, what they call draft board raids. But Catonsville was the most famous one, and Phil and Dan were together, and they went to the Selective Service Office in Catonsville, Maryland. Just one morning, they they went into the office. They took all the 1A files, which were people ready to be shipped to Vietnam, out of the file cabinets, brought them outside in a wire basket, 
poured homemade napalm on them and set them on fire. And basically, uh, that, that, was, that began this series of more than 100 draft board raids where people basically said, this war is immoral and nobody should be sent to it. And I mean, of course, this was symbolic action, but lots and lots of people, and I don't even know the numbers of them, did these actions, awaited arrest, surrendered to the FBI or to the police, and got sentenced to long prison terms. And, uh, and these, this was very, very controversial, you know, both culturally and theologically. The church addressed this. I mean, everybody was arguing about the ethics here of destroying property, you know, and so on and so forth. And, of course, uh, finally, when the Vietnam War ended, and I think it largely had, had a lot to do with the effort of people who resisted it, led by people like Philip and Daniel Berrigan and Elizabeth McAllister. But when the war ended, when people no longer had any skin in the game, the anti-war movement kind of ceased. It did not, it lost, it lost its power because people were instead decided, you know, satisfied that they had stopped the war. And so the activism died down. And that's when Phil, in his brilliance, uh, kind of, you know, just sort of reconfigured the anti-Vietnam War movement and built it into anti-interventionism, U.S. policy in Latin America and throughout the world. The United States has 180 approximately foreign bases on every continent all over the globe. We, uh, the Air Force Base near my house, Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, about, a, about an hour from my house, on their sign it says Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, and their motto is Global Power for America. Well, there's some integrity in that. It's not defense, it's global power for America, it's world domination. So Phil uh, started to talk about uh, U.S. interventionism. He started to talk about the nuclear arms race and where that was developing in the 70s, where, you know, where billions and billions and billions of dollars were squandered on weapons of mass destruction that are not defensive. I mean, you can't call a weapon that blows up an entire city a defensive weapon. It's obviously... A weapon that you know what we try, what we do in the plowshares movement is we compare weapons of mass destruction to the Nazi crematoria, but instead of bringing people to the crematoria and incinerating them, we send the we send the crematoria to them in the form of these weapons of mass destruction, which can incinerate entire cities. These weapons are not props. These weapons are real, and as I said earlier, there are men and women right now as we're having this conversation sitting around conference tables at the Pentagon, literally figuring out ways how to use these weapons and to end the human experiment. We've, we've really lost our moral grounding. There's just, there's no other way to explain it. And unfortunately, what's happened is the people all over the world now have been living in the nuclear age, living our lives on hair trigger alert 24-7. Nuclearism, which Phil Bergen would call our state religion, nuclearism, that replaced all, all other religions, has, has just, you know, we've reached a point where people have just gotten used to having nuclear weapons around. It's become normal, a normal part of our lives. And when something like that becomes normal, then the opposition to it is abnormal. So that's why we have no real anti-nuclear movement going right now uh, in, in this country, or for that matter, all around the world. And, and that has to change. If we want to save humanity and creation from doom at our own hands, we have to abolish war. And, and that's, that's, you mean, we can't go on, 
you know, the, the policy, the, the nuclear weapons policy of the United States is known as MAD, M-A-D, Mutually Assured Destruction. And what, you know, what, what the United States claims is, what the Pentagon claims is, nobody will actually ever use nuclear weapons because if you use them, they'll be used against you and it'll be mutual, mutually assured destruction, mutual suicide, and therefore we have this stalemate. Well, of course, that's, that's insane because for mutually assured destruction to be a policy that works, it has to last in perpetuity. It can never be tested. The first time there's a nuclear accident, the first time a terrorist gets a hold of a nuclear weapon, the first time somebody like Donald Trump follows through on his threat to bomb someplace like North Korea, the first time that happens, mutually assured destruction is a failed policy. And these weapons of mass destruction will kill millions and billions of people. There are scientists who think that if enough nuclear weapons are fired, that it will create this nuclear winter that will cut off, actually cut off sunlight so we won't even have agriculture. And this could go on for years. I mean, it could kill a staggering amount of people and make a lot of the earth uninhabitable. I mean, these are the worst case scenarios, but they're horrific examples of what we've done now that we've split the atom as a human family. It's been the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity and creation is in jeopardy. So, uh, you know, I can't, can't say enough about the risk that we're taking as a human family. So yeah. Dan, you know, Dan, Phil, and Liz working against this. Now Liz is the only survivor among the trio, and uh, she was in uh, jail recently for 17 months in a southeast Georgia jail, and she had her sentencing in July and received time served. But she's also on three years probation at the age of 81, which is really amazing that the government is doing that to an 81-year-old woman. Yeah. And and just to um, kind of uh, bring up, highlight some of the points that you brought up just now, you know, uh, Daniel Ellsberg talked about this nuclear winter um, in the Doomsday Machine um, that he wrote, that he published a few years ago, you know, and, and I read a little bit about it, but yeah, like, you know, I, I don't think people comprehend the fact that, you know, it's not just oh, you know, send a nuclear weapon and that's it. It's, it's, you know, as he mentions that whole, I can't articulate it so well, but, you know, that, that who makes the decision on sending the missiles back and he does all that study, but, um, but about the nuclear winter, right, that it'll affect the entire planet and how we all live in things. Um, but I also wanted to... Uh, I wanted to link what you were just saying earlier about, you know, um, the people at the Pentagon sitting at the conference table making these decisions um, to, to a paragraph that you wrote, that you wrote in your um, sentencing statement. I'll, I'll just read it for the, um, for the listeners. So those who think democracy is working um, deride our tactics. Seek out legal options for protesting, they say. Write our Congress member, et cetera, et cetera. Sorry, I think I wanted to bring up the next paragraph, which is um, you, were, you were saying about uh, the War Appropriations Act. Um, I'll come back to the, to the other one about, you know, the legal aspect. Um, you're saying that just nine Democrats, four Republicans, and Bernie voted no in this lopsided vote granting $740 million, $40 billion sorry, to the Pentagon um, that came during a deadly pandemic. Um, and so, you know, on the flip side, like who pays, right, monetarily, not just monetarily, but also 
in, in all the things like during a pandemic, like the healthcare or even education, all these things, right, that the 740 billion is being taken away from, but who's it going to? Like, where does the 740 billion actually go to? Well, rather than ask the question, where does it go to? I think we first have to look at, you know, everybody claims, oh, Democrats and Republicans have never been more apart. You know, they, they've never had so much hostility and angst toward each other. You know, there, there's nobody crossing, you know, crossing over and working on, you know, on bipartisan, act, you know, activity in the Congress and so on and so forth. We hear all this stuff about disunity. But then when the vote comes down for the, the largest appropriation that we have, and I call it the War Appropriation Act because uh, – they, they use the word defense, but I don't consider weapons of mass destruction to have any defensive application, right? They're not. They're just designed to eliminate entire cities full of people. So they're not defensive in nature. But the point is, why did 86% of United States senators vote for the largest appropriation of absolutely useless, useless products? These weapons, all this global... Uh, intrusion of the U.S. into people's people's governments, uh, including CIA activities that overthrow duly elected democracies. I mean, we're a criminal nation. You know, the famous quote from Martin Luther King in his 1967 speech beyond Vietnam at Riverside Church in New York, he said that the greatest purveyor of violence in the world is my own government. When Martin Luther King said that, 200 newspapers wrote editorials against him, and one year to the day, one year to the day later, he was he was assassinated. So a lot of people think that that statement led to his death. You know, when he stopped talking about, you know, white white kids and black kids holding hands, and he took that whole issue of racism and started to talk about global militarism led by the United States. That 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 sealed his fate. But the point is, we need to ask why. Is that money being given to war at a time when there's so much, so much human need being left unmet in, in the midst of a COVID, people being laid off, all these single mothers whose kids can't go to school, who have lost their jobs, all of these people who don't have health insurance. I, I mean, the, the list goes on and on, and that's in a first world country. I mean, the problems that we have here are nothing compared to the suffering of people all over the world who are living in, 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 in droughts and in famine and, and facing global warming, refugees all over the world. We are at a point at which human suffering is unprecedented and horrific, and we're spending $740 billion only on things that can make the situation worse, not just if the bombs are used, but just because that, that expenditure represents a theft from the poor. That money is taken, and instead of going to health care, to human needs, to education, to, to, to improving, uh, to, you know, to, to stopping global warming, instead it goes to contributing to global warming, to killing more people, to creating more, more dangerous situations in the world. That's really the question. I mean, what the money goes to is maintaining a military. That's what it does. It builds bombs. It, you know, it, it gives uniforms to soldiers. It sends them all over the world to police the world and to uh, to to protect uh, what you know we call uh, our interests. That's an interesting term to protect our interests. 
What are yeah. our interests? Global domination for America. That's what it said at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, global power for America. So the point is that what we're doing, and the reason, by the way, that 86% of the U.S. senators vote in favor of the war machine is because Boeing and Lockheed Martin and all these military contractors send tens of millions of dollars in campaign contributions to every single elected federal official con congressperson. And the, they don't just send to Republicans. Those military contractors send to Democrats. Every single person running for office receives this money. And that is why every you know why 86% of senators vote for war because they they are they are they have sold their souls to the military industrial complex and they're voting that way because that's their bread and butter that's how they get reelected and it and really it's the, the cynicism that people don't really want to see here is that money floats the boat people make money off war people make money off militarism and that's really what it's about it's not about defense it's not about military superiority. It's about money. Right. And that, that's part of what I was trying to get at. Like that $740 billion goes into the pockets, right? And I, I like how you said it's stolen from, you know, people who are actually working um, and, and put into the pockets of, of uh, shareholders and CEOs of those companies like Boeing, right, the top um, producer of, you know, not just nuclear weapons, but all kinds of weapons that, that are sold all over the world, um, you know, that, that's what we sell to the rest of the world as well. Um, so I, I want to sort of backtrack a little bit and then sort of weave into um, getting to, you know, your, your story and those of, of your um, your colleagues. So... I want to sort of backtrack a little bit to 1980, um, just to give the, the um, listeners an understanding of why, you know, why Plowshares that name, and sort of explain. And I think you've done it already, uh, but sort of sort of reiterate what the meaning of Plowshares is and the principles behind um, the actions of those um, who participate um, in the Plowshares movement. Yeah, I wanted to say probably. <laughs> If you haven't seen it and you're an educator, you will see it at some point in your life. But there's that famous uh, poster that says it will be a great day when our schools get all the money they need and the Air Force has to hold a bake sale to get a bonus. <laughs> That's great. That's a yeah. good one. But anyway, the Plowshares movement, again, as I was telling you the story of, uh, of the opposition to war, you know, when Phil Berrigan brought the anti-war movement into the anti-intervention movement, into the anti-nuclear movement, he came up with the idea of plowshares. And what plowshares did is that if anyone's ever been to the United Nations in New York, which is on First Avenue, uh, you know, right on the west side of, uh, right on the west side of First Avenue, there is a wall. It's known as the Isaiah Wall. It's a block-long wall of granite that has the following quote, uh, carved into it, etched into it. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. One nation shall not lift sword against another, nor shall they train for war anymore. That's the Isaiah Wall. That's Isaiah 2-4, and that's the passage that uh, created the plowshare movement. The idea was that we would actually take household hammers, gain access to these weapons, and dent them chip the paint off them, 
symbolically disarm them as a way of saying, I can symbolically begin the process of disarmament right here with my own household hammer. Well, of course, the government uh, doesn't, um, you know, doesn't doesn't appreciate the symbolic nature of these actions, and uh, literally hundreds of people. Well, it's probably not. I mean, there's probably a couple of hundred people who have done plowshare actions over the last 40 years, maybe a little more than that, but have spent more than you know hundreds of years in jail and prison as a result of these uh, these uh, these actions. And um, my the action I did, known as the King's Bay plowshares, was a uh, going to the Trident base in southeast Georgia, where the Trident submarines are based. Trident submarines are outfitted with a weapon called the Trident 2D5 missile. The Trident 2D5 missile was one of the most destabilizing weapons of the Cold War. When the United States developed the Trident, it was a big, big setback for uh, for any kind of efforts to to uh, slow down the arms race. The problem was that the D5 was the was you know alone a trident submarine could basically end life is it just one of them all right we have we have more than a dozen of them and so the trident was fitted with these d5 missiles well the problem is they were first strike weapons a first strike weapons means that this weapon if used first can take out the weapons of your enemy so that they have no chance for a retaliatory strike and the reason these are first strike weapons is because they're shot from sub. They're they're fired from submarines, which are not detectable, right? You can't you can't track where a submarine is, but also they're highly accurate weapons. Now the logical question to ask: Why does a nuclear weapon have to be accurate? If a nuclear weapon is dropped on northern Manhattan, midtown Manhattan, or or the Lower East Side, it will blow up the entire island and kill every living soul on the island. So why does it need to be accurate to within a hundred meters, which the Trident 2D5 is? because it's a first strike weapon. It has to hit your enemy's weapons before they use them, a very destabilizing weapon. And we went to the Trident base in southeast Georgia where it was and uh, went there to do a plasher action to, to hammer on one. Well, of course, there were no Tridents there at the time we went there. But what they did have at that base was what we called the Missile Shrine, which we had heard about and we found on Google Maps. And it was literally an entranceway to the base that included statues of nuclear weapons, statues of them. So, I mean, I don't know what the purpose of this nuclear shrine was. I don't know if people were expected to go there and, you know, genuflect or prostrate themselves. But what business does the Navy have building statues of nuclear weapons? I mean, it's bad enough that we have nuclear weapons, but why did we build these idols to nuclear weapons? So um, I got myself a hammer that was made out of melted down guns by a Quaker group out of Philadelphia. And I went up to that, uh, to that uh, big, big statue of the Trident 2D5 to, to kind of try to chip at it. But as it turned out, it was made of solid cement and the hammerhead broke right off my hammer. But we spray painted on these, on these statues, uh, blasphemy, idol, idolatry, love your enemies. I threw a, a, a bottle of blood on the base logo. We we uh, we did some hammering and and uh, you know chipping away at some of the stuff there that was uh, statues and other kinds of tributes to the nuclear arms race. 
and we awaited arrest. And so in the tradition of plowshares actions, you, you await arrest and you face the consequences of your actions. You go on trial and you go to prison. So I'm at the going to prison stage now. I have to report to federal prison uh, on January 14th to begin my 14th month sentence. So the plowshare movement came out of that idea that Phil Berrigan had. And you said, go back to 1980. Well, what, what uh, you're referring to, Nina, is 1980 was the first plowshare action in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, when Phil and Daniel Berrigan and, uh, and six other people, including uh, all six are good friends of mine, uh, went into a general electric plant in King of Prussia where they were manufacturing what's known as the, the, uh, the Mark 12A nuclear missile. They were able to find some nose combs in the factory and hammer on them with hammers. And so the first, uh, the first plasture action began. And now there's been more than 100 in the last 40 years, many of them resulting in federal trials here in the States. There have been several plasture actions in Europe uh, and, uh, you know, all throughout places where there are nuclear weapons. And uh, and as I said, many people have uh, been sent to prison. I, I've, uh, I, this is my uh, second pressure action where I'm being sent to prison. I served 26, and, 26 months in federal prison back in the 1980s for a pressure action, and uh, now I'm going to have to serve 14 months. So that's, that's a little background on it. I, I want to say this. Uh, I get a lot of criticism from people, even people who kind of agree that nuclear weapons are terrible, but they, they really complain about my tactics, right, to, to break the law, to destroy property. So there's a couple things I want to say about that because it's important to address that. Um, the, the, uh, I think of the political and theological examples of property, of, of disregard for people's property. I think of the Boston Tea Party. Uh, and nobody participated in the Boston Tea Party throwing tens of thousands of dollars worth of British tea into Boston Harbor is ever, is ever decried for violating the property rights of those British tea companies. And then there's the famous story in the New Testament where Jesus cleanses the temple of the money changers and overturns their tables and drives their animals out and so on and causes a calamity there, not you know, violating the property rights of the money changers. Um, well, obviously, uh, you know, there are times there are times when dramatic theatrical action makes a difference, and I consider the plowshares actions right in right in that sort of frame of reference. The Boston Tea Party and cleansing the temple of money changes. And one time, I was on a radio show that had you know, people could call in, and a guy called in, and he was just upset. These were my missiles. My tax dollars paid for them. You hammered on them. You put the law into your own hands. And, and I let him talk. You know, I wanted to hear what he had to say. And when he finished talking, I validated what he said. I said, you're right. You are a taxpayer. I did take the law into my own hands. I did, did hammer on that property. And, uh, you know, I want to say that you have a right to be angry about that. But I want to, I want to pose a question to you. All I did was chip a little paint and dent a little metal and throw some blood on that missile launcher. And how come that outrages you so much that you've called in to express your feelings about it? But the fact that these weapons that I dented and shipped paint from can, can destroy entire cities full of innocent people, why does that not give you any pause? Why does that not upset you? How have you gotten to a mindset where you can be upset about something the government calls vandalism, but not about the fact that the government's planning to blow up entire cities full of people. And that's the mystery to me. That's a great, great comeback. 
That's and it, it's something to think about. Absolutely, right? Um, you know, I, I was just reading through your your statement. You know, you do just address what you were just saying about you know breaking the law. And I know oh, I can't think of the quote. I'm sure you'll be able to say the quote um, directly. Uh, that Martin Luther King said that you know it, if the law is sort of unjust, we should break it, right? Um, exactly. In, in your statement. Um, Right. You say those who think democracy is working deride our tactics, um, seek out legal options for protesting. So basically you're saying you're there saying, you know, you should stay within the law, um, you know, and not not cause trouble. And they say write to your congressional representatives. And as you said earlier, all the congressional representatives, you know, are for having these weapons um, to don't break the law. Such advice makes sense to those who think that individual citizens have as much power to affect change as do the corporations that give millions of dollars to legislators, right, who turn um, half their votes for weapons um, and war and selling their vote to what President Eisenhower termed the military-industrial complex. Um, and so I wanted to sort of uh, point to another thing you wrote in your statement um, let me find it here real, real quick. I did uh, want to say one thing. I just want to yeah. say one thing before you transition. Yeah, yeah. If if I had held up a placard outside of Naval Station Kings Bay protesting the Trident submarines with the Trident two D five missiles, uh, I would not be on this show with you right now. <laughs> if I if I did everything that was in the confines of the law, which allows symbolic presence but nothing to facilitate change, uh, I don't have the power. Of these, of these corporations that give tens of million dollars to people running for the Senate and for Congress. I can't, I don't have that kind of influence. So I use drama, you know, I use theater in this action at, 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 uh, at Kings Bay Naval Station, Trident Subbase, and that results in people being curious. That's why we're having this conversation. So, uh, you know, hopefully that's, that's you know, that, that's working, you know, that, that tactic's working. So right. And I think that's such an important question, right? There's this aspect of, of principles upon which you, you asked, and then there's tactics. Um, just just a, a quick curiosity, like, you know, do you as a group, did, did you as a group come together and sort of plan? Because it sounds like everything that you um, brought along to the action and you did is very symbolic, like, you know, the gun that's melted from – or or wait, no, I'm sorry, the hammer that was melted from uh, other guns, other weapons, and things like that, and throwing, you know, your blood onto things. Um, do you all sit and sort of have a conversation about um, what the tactics will be? Well, the process of planning our action at King's Bay was two and a half years long, and we met in retreats for three to, four, three to five days at a time. And I, I would say that probably up to this point we've probably met for maybe 30 retreats so far. So it was a lot of planning, but, but you have to understand, the planning for that action had two components to it. One was prayer, a great devotion to prayer. And the retreat was a religious experience, a, a, a reflection on scripture, uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, time together discerning what God's will was. And second, it was planning the action itself. So it took a very long time, and you're right, all the symbolism we used came out of discussions or had, or had been done in similar actions in the past. Like, for example, you mentioned uh, the Doomsday Machine, Daniel Ellsberg's book. 
but we carried a copy of that into the base with us, and we put it on the ground outside the administrative headquarters of the base. So we everything was intentional. Everything we brought with us was intentional. That's that's so fascinating, and so it, it makes it a lot more meaningful. Um, and let's see. I want to bring up uh, two more points. One is I appreciate, right, it, that it's not just about, like, you're not, your focus is on these actions and is on, you know, ending nuclear weapons. But at the same time, like, I appreciate, in, you know, like in your statement, right, in your um, sentencing statement, you, you know, you bring, you bring together poverty, um, race, and, and essentially class and, um you know, about the current pandemic and about humanity. And so, you know, I just want to read this um, one paragraph. There's no page numbers on this. I printed it out. Um, I think anyone involved in this work needs to pay special attention to the humanity of the guilty. Um, and I, I believe you were, you were speaking directly to the judge, um, Judge Wood, I think. Um, have right. you kept in touch with any of those you have sent to prison? Have you, by chance, written to any of those offenders to find out how they are doing in prison? Have you asked about their families left behind? Are you sure none of them have died in custody because of COVID-19? And that's the other thing that's just <laughs> My guess is that, you know, because of – your because your actions are political because as you said in your sentencing um that you know they took quite a hard line upon you and and also um elizabeth mccallis like you i don't know if you're currently wearing a, a ankle monitor but having to wear ankle monitors and, and just really being under surveillance um and not being let out on your own cognizance and um so i i just appreciate how you bring all of that together about the prison industrial complex and all of that. Um, well, the government deals very harshly with people who, I mean, one thing, you know, we, we're supposed to be a participatory democracy, right? Well, any healthy democracy embraces dissent. Dissent is healthy for democracy. If, if, if we have unanimous opinion about everything, we're not a democracy. I, I remember asking Phil Berrigan once, you know, Phil Berrigan and Daniel Berrigan were on the cover of Time magazine in 1971. Well, Phil would go to the Pentagon and get arrested. I'd be there with him. I'd see him get arrested. And the Washington Post would never write anything about it. No TV stations would be there. No radio stations would be there. He would get arrested. He would, Phil would get arrested in obscurity. Nobody would know about it except the people who were there seeing it happen. And I said to Phil, I said, you know, why do you keep going back to the Pentagon and getting arrested when you get no media coverage? You know, it, it doesn't appear like anybody knows about it. And he said, Patrick, I go back to the Pentagon because we're their only access to the truth. If we don't go to the Pentagon and kneel down and pray or block the doorway and say this is wrong, then the people at the Pentagon are going to think there's unanimous support for what they do but we're their only access to the truth. And the truth is the war machine isn't going to keep, is not going to solve our problems. Yeah. So I kind of want to bring a full circle. I'm going to read another paragraph from your, from your um, uh, sentencing statement, because I think it's really important and it, it really links what you're doing, you know, and the legacy of your work and those of, you know, Philip Daniel Bergen and, and, 
um, to everybody else and to the future. And so I'm, I'm just going to read here. It says, so off to jail and prison we go, all seven of us, thrice convicted felons. But what about all of you who are the operatives of this government? And I'm assuming when you say you, and this is me talking, you know, that you mean everybody, because we all help in some way to make that government operative. And what of all of us taxpayers who supply the means for carrying out the plans for war? What can we say of our gamble? What will history show us of you far from now? Sadly, those who say nothing in the face of evil are contributing to evil by their collective silence and the denial of our collective sinfulness. Um, and, and I know that those that has roots in Martin Luther King who said, you know, if you're silenced, then you are complicit. Um, but for, for, you know, a general audience, people, like what, what would you like to say in terms of, you know, how you, I don't think everyone would, you know, them their lives on the line essentially as you um and the other plowshares have done but what are some other things that people can do um to resist against war against um nuclear war well what educators can do is obvious uh we can teach we can teach the truth if you if you open up U.S. history books that are commonly used in elementary school, middle school, and high school, you'll find that they uh, give short shrift to U.S. imperialism. They don't discuss the dangers of nuclear war. They don't historically uh, condemn the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. These are blips on the radar of education. We leave out so much important stuff. And, of course, Everybody should be familiar with the people's history of the United States by Howard Zinn. There's also a version of the people's history of the United States for teens. Uh, we have to be telling the stories, the historical stories, through the context of the victims. We can't tell the stories through the context of the, of the, uh, of, of the victors, of those who wage war. If we do, then people only get... Uh, you know, they only get a very, very incomplete, distorted story. So, I mean, one way you can do it is t teaching the truth. That's a good way to begin, since I'm talking to educators. We can't allow the narrative that lies about war and calls war necessary. And the narrative, now, you know, like here's a perfect example, which you will encounter as teachers if you don't, if you teach at anything less than the college level. You'll encounter the Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag, my children encountered the Pledge of Allegiance of the Flag in their preschool classrooms. This is, an, this is an indoctrination of children when they're very young to put their hands over their hearts and basically engage in a state religious activity. Because if you're, if you're told, put your hand over your heart, look at this, this flag, you know, uh, up, you know, hanging in the classroom, and then and then basically recite a loyalty oath to that flag and what it means, and and to, and to basically say that this is liberty and justice for all. Well, that's the first lie. That's the first lie that our children are exposed to. So I raised my children and I told them when they were little, I said, don't stand up for that pledge of allegiance to the flag. Be brave enough and courageous enough to sit down and say no to it. And so my children understood 
that resistance had consequences because when they didn't participate in the Pledge of Allegiance, they were ostracized for that sometimes, or teachers made comments that were not very kind. But, it, but what we want is groupthink in this country. We want everybody to abide by these sort of, uh, uh, you know, I, these rituals that are very much religious rituals and to indoctrinate our children to only associate good things with the American flag. Not just good things, divine things, holy things. We want the American flag to be almost a symbol of God in our classrooms. And that, of course, is the complete opposite of the truth. Patriotism, you know, it, you know, it's the way of scoundrels, you know, because patriotism, what it does is it instills in people, it indoctrinates people, but then it also instills them with fear because if they fail, if they buck the system and they don't live up to somebody else's measure of what patriotism means, you know, you're, you're taking a big risk in this culture. You're taking a very big risk. There's high consequences to pay if you're sitting at a, at a baseball game and you don't stand up for the national anthem. Uh, you know, or you join the people who kneel down during the national anthem, or you don't put your hand over your heart and stand up and and at and and become you know adorize the the U.S. flag. These are really important issues. These are issues that are used to indoctrinate our children so they're not free thinkers. You know, they they don't think freely because they've already be, they've already accepted the fact that the patriotic line is true that our country is the light shining on the hill. We do nothing wrong. Anytime you hear a politician speak, what's behind them? The American flag. What's on their lapel? The American flag. So all the associations are positive. Well, to tell you the truth, if you really think about it, the people all over the world who have been the victims of U.S. war making, corporate, cor corporate exploitation by U.S. corporations, the American flag represents the same thing to people all over the world that the Confederate flag represents to African Americans in this country. It's a flag of oppression and it's a flag of war. It's, it's not, it's not a, a liberating symbol at all. It doesn't mean good. It's certainly not godly. So I think we've got, to, we've got to deprogram our children or not program in that way. What we want is critical thinkers. We want children to come out and to ask questions. You know, one of the things that the U.S. attorney said in, uh, in sentencing uh, my co-defendant, Father Steve Kelly, he said, oh, when, when the school children on the base saw the damage that you did, you know, he, he said we were sort of, you know, we were somehow uh, endangering the sensibilities of children because we spray painted on these idols and we threw blood on the, on the sign and we chipped away some paint and put crime scene tape over the door to the administration building. And I said, well, I, I took umbrage with that. In my sentencing statement, I said, how about maybe those, those school children went home that night and asked their parents, how come we have weapons, weapons, statues of weapons of mass destruction? And how come those people wrote biblical quotes on them? And how come, and if those nuclear weapons are used, won't a lot of people get killed? Maybe what we did was we got them to be thinking about another way of looking at those statues they had never thought of before and just kind of accepted as normal, statues of weapons of mass destruction. And maybe there were some ministers who were courageous enough to take our action and talk about it in their sermons, or maybe some Sunday schools decided to have conversations about what we did and why we did it. So let's hope that it had another, another uh, uh, outcome, an outcome that kind of gets people 
listening to this radio show and hearing, wow, okay, this guy, this guy, Mr. O'Neill, he's, he, you know, he's out there and he's on the edge, but a lot of what he's saying gives me, you know, gives me some, some pause in this world. I want my children and grandchildren to grow up in a world free of nuclear weapons. I want my children and grandchildren to grow up without the threat of global warming, uh, wiping out most of, most of creation. I mean, these are things that we share, common things that we share. So right. things that people have to do is they have to look at creative ways to address the indoctrination of the people. Because it's very hard to, to – when people are indoctrinated, it's very hard to, to, to reverse that process. I one time taught a, uh, a three-hour class to international, ed, international uh, education students at uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and I, it was a position that I taught with. And we tried to ask the students, and this is a higher level course, you know, a 4,000 level course, and we were trying to ask the students where they got their sources of information. How do you formulate your views of things? Religious views, political views, social views. What, what are your sources of your information? And we'd ask that question, and then we would talk about the things that we believe in, disarmament, uh, justice, you know, uh, uh, no racism, for example, and so you know pacifism. And what the physician said to me was something very interesting. What he said to the students is, to get somebody who's been indoctrinated to believe something to be true, either being passed down by their family or their social surroundings or their church or their religious values they've been taught, but to, to get a person to sort of disassociate with something that they now find to be questionable and not authoritative, you have to almost go through the stages that people go through in death and dying in order to do that. It's, it's so hard to get people to change their views once they've developed those views. So what I'm saying to educators is you're in a great position. Let's work with our children before they get indoctrinated to patriotism, before they're indoctrinated to the point where they don't critically think. It's a very, very dangerous system we have, and it's intentionally that way. I mean, I had teachers all through my, and I had eight children in schools, right, in public schools and in Catholic schools and charter schools. I had children in a lot of different schools, and I always encountered teachers who could not understand why I would do something so horrific as not have my children recite the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. They bought into that. They bought into that. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio. Um, you have been listening to Patrick O'Neill talk about the history and his experience, um, the history of the plowshares, um, and also his experience um, with the plowshares 7 break into the King's Bay Naval Base to protest against um, the Trident missiles at the biggest um, uh, nuclear submarine base in the world. Um, and that does it for us today. Um, we hope that you will sort of have this on your mind as Veterans Day comes upon us and, um, and to resist against uh, militarism and, um, and nuclear weapons and war. Um, and for educators, if you're interested in receiving materials um, for your classrooms, um, please email us at um, brattleboro 
solidarity at gmail.com. So Brattleboro is B-R-A-T-T-L-E-B-O-R-O and then solidarity at gmail.com and just ask for um, the materials. Uh, I'd be happy to send you information um, that you could use in your classroom about Philip and Daniel Berrigan and, um, and a few other things. So uh, join us next week. Next week we have a part two of uh, math and social justice. Um, part one was aired last week, um, and you can listen to it through our archives on iTunes podcast or on SoundCloud. Um, I spoke with Artist D Street, who is an educator um, in the Boston Public Schools, and he talked about his work in integrating math and social justice, um, particularly in working with students of color. And um, next Sunday, uh, I we will air a show that and where I interview Jariela Cruz, um, who is a math um, teacher. I think right now she works in the middle grades. Um, when I worked with her, we worked at the Palo Ferry Social Justice Charter School, um, where it was at the high school level. But she goes, she gives great examples of how she integrates mathematics um, into into her, I'm sorry, how she integrates social justice into her mathematics lesson. So please stay tuned. Um, that episode drops on uh, November 15th. And have a good week.